Well, as we turn to God's Word this morning, I wanted to take uh, one week to uh, kind of wrap up the series that we've been through for over a year now in Isaiah, just to once again repeat the, the main message, as I understand it, of the book of Isaiah, and also to turn our eyes to where we're going next. And where we're going next is the book of First Peter. And so I want to try to connect us to, uh, connect Isaiah to First Peter as we see some of the similar themes going there. And I want us to see how God's Word really is all of one piece. And so that means that this sermon will be a little bit different, I guess you could say, than most sermons, and that I don't have one small text that I'm preaching from. Rather, I'm aiming to preach from the whole book of Isaiah itself, and then again to capture something of the message of First Peter. And so with that in mind, I've selected a couple passages that I think are some of the key passages from the book of Isaiah. Um, and so first, Anna will come and read for us from Isaiah 6, 1 to 7. If we don't get that passage, we certainly can't understand what Isaiah is saying. And then after that, Nate will come up and read for us from Isaiah 53, 1-6, which again is just another one of those critical passages in the book of Isaiah. After that, Pat will come up and read for us from Romans 8, 31-32, that I think really, even though it's not in the book of Isaiah, captures very well what the message of Isaiah is, what the heart of Isaiah is. And then lastly, uh, John will come up and read for us from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, that in themselves uh, have Peter saying that his book is of one piece, or his letter is of one piece with the book of Isaiah. Uh, and so now if you'd like to come forward, Anna, and begin our reading in Isaiah chapter 6. This one? Okay, good deal. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans 8, 31 through 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? First Peter 1, 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Well, one thing that you may have noticed through the series in Isaiah that I haven't commented much on, uh, but that really I'll I'll focus my message on this morning, is that the the title of the series through this book of Isaiah was Unshakable. I didn't comment on it very much because I didn't want to be overly repetitive, but really this idea of us being unshakable in the Lord was really in the background of almost every message in the book of Isaiah, because I think that is the overall impact that Isaiah wanted to have on the people of his day, that they would be unshakable in the Lord himself. And unshakable really isn't an overstatement. I don't think that Christians should just be mostly unshakable or sometimes unshakable. I I think that we who hope in God really should be completely unshakable. We follow in the lineage of men and women, just average people, servants, who gave their lives for Christ on the sands of the Circus Maximus before hundreds of thousands of jeering fans waiting to see their blood spilt. And beloved, if they could be so unshakable in the face of that, surely we here can be unshakable in the face of whatever trials we may be facing in our day-to-day life. And yet the reason why we should be unshakable is really the most important thing, is it not? It doesn't do any good to simply stand up here and say you should be unshakable as a Christian. We believe as Christians that the reason why we should be unshakable is the most important thing. We believe that belief itself has the power to make us strong or weak, has the power to make us hope or despair, has the power to make us great or small. It matters what we believe. What we believe will make us unshakable or it will make us weak. And so for this message, I really want to focus on the book of Isaiah and how the book of Isaiah itself gives us reasons to be unshakable in our lives. Again, whatever worries or anxieties we may have, whatever it is that may trouble us from day to day, I think if we really grasp the message of the book of Isaiah, then we'll understand that all of these things are very small. And that they need not overly trouble us or overly consume our minds or our lives as we realize who God is and how great He is. I was reminded this week of one of, of course, many great Charles Spurgeon quotes, but he says that a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And I think that's certainly the case with the book of Isaiah, that if you know the book of Isaiah well, if, if its message gets into your veins then you will not have a life that is falling apart because you will be able to find strength in the Lord. 
And so that's why the central theme of Isaiah is that we should be unshakable because Isaiah, more than any other prophet or writer in the Bible, points us to a God who is absolutely and completely unshakable. It is as we draw near to this God, it is as we know him that we ourselves then become unshakable. As someone else said, the one who fears God fears nothing else. The one who fears God need fear nothing else. And so when I say that we should be unshakable, I really am talking about a life that is free from the fear of man, free from worry and anxiety, free from fear of material provision or fear of what might happen to your kids, a life of confidence and boldness because you know that you have someone backing you up who is the king of heaven and earth. But I recognize that this isn't a common sense message, and I recognize that there are lots of people on earth, maybe even some of you here this morning, who shouldn't be unshakable, precisely because you don't have God on your side fighting your battles. And so the real question for us this morning, again from the book of Isaiah, is how do we get to this place of being unshakable? How does the message of Isaiah get into our veins so that we can be unshakable people just as Isaiah was? Well, what I want to propose this morning is really three steps that Isaiah gives us. And I call them steps because I do believe they have to happen in a particular order. And so let me just give you the three steps. And then again, we'll spend the message diving into those three steps. And in closing, I want to see how First Peter also reiterates this message. So the first step that we have to get from the book of Isaiah is that we have to fear the Lord. Step one is fear the Lord. Or if you want to put it differently, if you don't like the word fear, you could say realize how great God is. Realize how great God is. <clears throat> Excuse me. Step two is realize who your true enemy is. Realize who your true enemy is. And then step three is realize how God has dealt with your enemy. Realize how God has dealt with your enemy. And again, I believe that if you go through these three steps, then you will be a person who is unshakable. Of course, it need not be said that it's not just a a one-time thing, like you go through these three steps one time and you're unshakable from then on out. No, we as believers need reminding day after day. We have to go through these steps over and over. And so these three steps that I commend to you from the book of Isaiah, I hope are something that you can consider again and again as you strive to remove worries and fears from your life and overcome the fear of man and the many other fears that we all battle on a day-to-day basis. So step one, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. The very first step to being unshakable is to have an unshakable God. If you have a small God or a God who is at the mercy of people or at the mercy of time or place, then you will never be unshakable. You will always have anxieties because your God is not big enough to deal with the problems of your life. And again, Isaiah, perhaps better than any other author of Scripture, knew and described this unshakable God. He describes him first in the very personal encounter that he himself has with God that we read about in Isaiah chapter 6. 
where Isaiah remembers this time when the Lord descended and and took Isaiah up into his very throne room. And Isaiah can say that he saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on a throne with the train of his robe filling the whole temple. And it wasn't just the Lord that Isaiah saw. Isaiah also saw the seraphim, each having six wings, with two wings covering their face, with two covering their feet, and with two flying constantly and continuously, crying out, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as the mere seraphim said those things, that the whole foundation of the throne room shook. And Isaiah could only be left in absolute fear of what he saw because he saw a God who was much greater than anything that he had ever imagined with these heavenly beings that he never even conceived crying out in worship day and night to this great and awesome God. And so Isaiah had this personal encounter with God that brought him to a place of fear of the Lord. And even though I don't believe that God designs to give each one of us the same experience that Isaiah had, I think it's still right for us to press into God and ask for God to show us something of himself the same way that he showed something of himself to Isaiah. Now, I've prayed that God would reveal himself to me like he revealed himself to Isaiah for many years, and God still has not fully answered that prayer, but I still know that there's so much more of God's greatness for me to be able to see, and so I continue to pray, and I continue to seek the Lord and say, Lord, show me just how great you are. In fact, a big part of the reason why we pursue exegetical preaching on Sunday morning rather than preaching on some more practical topic or life skills in that way is because I believe that it's through the proclamation of God's word itself and saying that God's word has the priority, not our needs, that we come to fear the Lord. We come to see that God, as he is in himself, is more important than our needs, is more important than our own concerns, and so we learn to fear the Lord as we sit under the preaching of God's word week by week. We understand just how vastly important the Lord's word is. And so even though the Lord hasn't given me the same experience that he gave Isaiah of seeing him in his throne room with the whole foundation of the room shaking, I do believe that through looking at God's word, we can also grow in our fear of the Lord. And again, this is what many passages of Isaiah are committed to. One of my favorites that most sticks in my mind day after day, year after year, is Isaiah 48, verses 9 to 11. God says, For my namesake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. When I read a passage like that, it just so much blows up my notions of a God who simply cares about me and simply wants to take care of me. And instead, I realize that God is doing everything for himself and for his own majesty. And yes, that does sometimes mean that he will protect me. But sometimes, as this passage says, it means he will refine me. He will try me in the furnace of affliction precisely because he is greater. He is more worthy of everything than anything that I deserve or 
any rights that I have. That is how exalted and lifted up God is. Isaiah is the one who tells us that we were created for God's glory. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7 says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And so we were only created, we are only here because we exist for God's glory because of how high and lifted up He is. Or again, as we read even in the call to worship this morning in Isaiah 40, 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Beloved, this is the God who we serve. And if this is the God who we serve, then we can only have one right response to him. And that response is fear. It is trembling. If you want to put a softer touch on it, yes, you could call it reverence or you could call it awe if you'd like. But I believe that when we truly see just how exalted the Lord is, and if we want to use the the word that the Bible so often uses for how we are to relate to God, the correct word is fear. Because surely no one as small as us, no one as sinful as us, no one as messed up as we are could stand in the presence of the Lord and do anything other than fear. His greatness is truly unsearchable and we exist at his pleasure. And so, beloved, if you want to be unshakable, it might seem ironic, but the very first step is to be shaken. But to be shaken not by anything that happens on earth, but by who God is in himself. You must realize that we ought to, that we have to fear the Lord, that the Lord is great and exalted, and that he is greater than anything that we could ever fathom or behold, that for the eternity of heavens that go on after this life, we will be looking into the greatness and the majesty and the power and the glory of God. And so we should fear the Lord. And this is the first step. Again, every day we need to remind our hearts to fear the Lord, to remember how great God is if we want to live unshakable lives. The second step that we have to take is we have to realize who our true enemy is. We have to realize who our true enemy is, namely the enemy that would come between us and this unshakable God. Now, I know that maybe for us Christians, this seems like second nature. We know that our enemy is sin and this doesn't need to be labored over. But beloved, I do think it needs to be labored over because we so easily deceive ourselves to think that we have a hundred different enemies in the world and the last one that we think to fight is sin itself. And again, Isaiah himself was speaking to a people that did not realize who their true enemy was. The whole first half of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is mostly proclaiming judgment on the people of God. He's proclaiming to them their sins because they just don't see them. They just don't realize them. They are too caught up in worrying about other things. They think they have many other enemies. And in some ways, this is justified. There are very many things that come against us in this life, and there were many things 
things coming against the people of God even in this day. And if we look at the storyline of Scripture, we do see that God's people had many different external enemies through the ages. There were the Egyptians that enslaved God's people, right? And so the Egyptians were an enemy of God's people, and God delivered them from Egypt. And then after that, when they came into the promised land, then the Canaanites, like the Philistines, were the enemies of God's people, and they oppressed them, and God would deliver them from the Canaanites. And so God's people were reading this history that God had written for them, and they were looking at all these external enemies enemies they had. And in Isaiah's day, the great external enemy that they feared was the Assyrians. And so they thought, you know, the the real enemy we have, the real thing we should fear here is the Assyrians. They took for granted that they were God's chosen people. They took for granted that God was their God. And so they thought that the only thing they needed to worry about because they had already been chosen was all these other enemies that were out there. And beloved, it's easy and it's also dangerous for us as Christians to start thinking in those terms, to start just kind of taking for granted that, that we've been chosen, that we've been saved. And so now our, our main enemy is no longer sin. Then we start to think that our main enemy is something out there. Our main enemy is other people that come against us or some physical circumstance that makes us really uncomfortable. We think that that is what we really need to fight against. We want to draw the line between good and evil, between our church and another church, or between the church of God and people who aren't in the church of God. And and so we start to think that, oh, we just need to fight these external battles. But in the famous words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he said, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Beloved, sin is still our greatest enemy. And yes, there are many other things outside of us that trouble us that, yes, we do have to deal with from day to day, but we must keep these things in right proportion. We must understand that those things are not our greatest enemy. It is the sin that wages war against our eternal soul that is our greatest enemy. And so we must not presume upon God's grace. Rather, we must be diligent, as it says in Second Peter, to confirm our calling and election. As Isaiah himself realized when he was in the presence of God in that throne room, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah came into the presence of God, he saw very clearly that what was putting him most at risk, what was most dangerous in his life, was not the Assyrians. It wasn't the poverty of his people. It wasn't the oppression they were feeling. It wasn't any other enemy. It was the fact that there was this God who was sitting on a throne, who was pure, and the fact that he was unholy, that he was of unclean lips, and he lived in a people, in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And so we must recognize, beloved, that today and tomorrow and until the day we die, our greatest enemy is going to be sin itself. And so if we want to be unshakable, we must not take our eyes off of these truths, that God is a great God, high and lifted up, a God to be feared, and that our greatest enemy is our sin. But 
If we only go through those two steps, we're obviously still in a very shaken kind of position, are we not? Because then we have come to see how great God is. We have come to see how God is even against us as sinners. And yet it's when we realize the glory, the beauty of this third step that we now come onto an unshakable foundation. And so step three is to realize how God has dealt with our sin. Realize how God has dealt with our sin. Now, again, in Isaiah's day, because people did not see their true enemy, they did not see their true victory. They didn't see how God truly would deal with their sin. Instead, they only saw how God would deal with those external problems that they faced. And indeed, one of the climaxes of the book of Isaiah was Isaiah 38, where the armies of the, of the army of the Assyrians surrounds Jerusalem. And all the people feel trapped and they feel at the mercy of this great superpower who has come to destroy their city. And King Hezekiah prays to the Lord and the Lord brings this great deliverance and the people of Jerusalem are saved and the Assyrian army is destroyed. And it is a beautiful story, but the problem is that in the midst of that, the people of Israel, Jerusalem, then thought that, hey, our greatest enemy really has been dealt with. The Assyrians, they've all fled away and we're now a free people. And so they let their guard down. In the very next chapter of Isaiah, God promises condemnation at the hands of the Babylonians because they totally missed the point. They didn't realize that the salvation that God was working in delivering them from the Assyrians was really just a picture of a greater salvation that God wanted to work to deliver them from their greatest enemy, the enemy of sin. And so because they didn't realize their true enemy, they didn't realize their true victory. I read a story this week that really fixed in my mind why it's so important for us to understand both the greatness of God and to understand who our true enemy is. I I just read this in a Christian book that I was reading, and the story goes like this. It was a man, the author of this book, and his wife, they had made a casual acquaintance with someone. And the man and his wife, they're, they're both Christians. And the man who they made an acquaintance with, they didn't know him very well. They didn't know if he was a believer or not. But after they made this acquaintance with him, this man begins to message this Christian man's wife and starts to flirt with her and send her suggestive messages. And this, this Christian man obviously gets very angry that this other man would be in some way trying to seduce his wife or win his wife away from him. And so to this Christian man, this is obviously terrible and unacceptable. And this man's wife is also very troubled by these texts that she did not ask for and she doesn't know what to do about them. And so this Christian man has to think, what, what am I going to do? What, what am I, how am I going to stop this? And so he decides to schedule a meeting with this other man who is sending these messages to his wife. He met him at a coffee shop. And as he was thinking about what he would do at this coffee shop, he knew that he wanted to intimidate this other man. He wanted to get angry. He wanted to make a scene in this coffee shop so that this other man would know for sure that he could not mess with this other man's wife. And so when the day came and it was time for him to go into this coffee shop and meet with this man, he was obviously very nervous, but he knew what he had to do and he carried out his plan. He went into that coffee shop and he made a scene and he told that other man in no uncertain terms that he was not to send messages to his wife any longer and that if he saw him anymore, he better turn back the other way and not show his face again. 
And that man got the message. And he never sent any messages to the Christian man's wife again. And so do you see how this man came to the defense of his wife? Do you understand why he would want to come to the defense of his wife? Because he saw that this other man was threatening harm to his wife, threatening to lead his wife astray. And this man, because he loved his wife, wanted to protect her, wanted to defend her against that which would harm her. Again, beloved, the mistake that God's people have made all too often over the years is we think it's something external that ultimately wants to harm us, and therefore we think it's something external that God is going to fight against or that God is going to deal with. But the beauty of seeing that our greatest enemy is sin, that our real enemy is sin, that sin is what most harms us, is then we understand that God in his love for us will come and do battle against this sin. He will deal with this sin because it is harming his bride, the one whom he loves. And this is the amazing message of the book of Isaiah. As we read in Isaiah 53, that God would one day send a servant who would be pierced for our transgressions, would be crushed for our iniquities. You see, the, the Jewish people and we ourselves far too often think, Lord, crush this other person over here. We think, pierce this problem that I have. And we don't think, Lord, pierce my transgressions, crush my iniquities. And that is exactly what the Lord did in Jesus Christ in sending him. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Sin is our greatest enemy. And this is what the Lord, the mighty warrior, has done. The Lord has laid on him, that is on Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. Beloved, there is now no payment left for our sins if you trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, and if there is no more payment for your sins, if God comes against our sins as a mighty warrior to crush them and to destroy them, then we now have nothing whatsoever to fear. We can be totally unshakable because the God who is the greatest being in all of existence And the only one enemy we have, the enemy of sin itself, has been dealt with. And now we can have God on our side because he himself dealt with our sins and paid the full price. And so now we have the good news of Romans 8 that we also read. That if God is for us, then who could be against us? If God is for us, we can be unshakable. We don't have to worry anymore about poverty. We don't have to worry anymore about broken relationships. We don't have to worry anymore about what could happen to our kids. We don't have to worry about anything because God is for us and therefore nothing in all of heaven or earth can be against us. He who did not spare his own son with him will freely give us all things that we need, beloved. And so we can trust in him because he is the all-powerful God and he has dealt with our one enemy and therefore we have every reason to rejoice and to draw near to him. Now, First Peter is going to press this truth into our lives even more. Peter was writing to a people who were suffering greatly. 
Peter was writing to a people who faced many different external problems who I'm sure prayed to God daily for deliverance from this kind of oppression and that kind of harm and this kind of hatred. And yet the message of 1 Peter is crystal clear. The message of 1 Peter is not, yes, keep seeking the Lord so that you won't be oppressed anymore, so that you won't suffer anymore. No, the message of 1 Peter is that the Lord will help you to stand firm in the midst of your trials because he sent Jesus Christ to pay for all your sins. 1 Peter exhorts us to fear the Lord because we see that the Lord is great, how he is greater than anything else. 1 Peter reminds us that our real enemy is not these outside oppressors, but that our real enemy is sin. And 1 Peter reminds us that God has dealt with that sin. And because he has dealt with it, we have room only for hope. That no matter how much suffering we may experience today, how much pain we may experience today, our future is bright beyond imagination because God is for us, because he has dealt with the enemy of sin. And so my prayer for us is that as we go through 1 Peter, our hearts will be filled with joy as we realize what God has done in Jesus Christ, and God will give us the strength to endure through whatever trial we may experience precisely because we know how great God is and how he has dealt with our sin and therefore how he is on our side now and forever. And so, beloved, let's be an unshakable people. Let's not live in fear of the world or in fear of what the world can do to us. Not live in fear of our situations or circumstances, but knowing our true enemy and knowing how great God is, let's be bold in the salvation that God has already provided for us, knowing that there is nothing that can stand against us if God truly is for us. Well, beloved, let me go ahead and open us in prayer now, and then I invite you to also go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not stayed opposed to us, but that you have sent your Son to bear our iniquities. And God, I pray that you would help us to see just how wonderful that is, how that truly is the healing that we need, how that truly is the deliverance that we need, how our main enemy is not the things outside of us, but it is the wicked twistedness of our own hearts. And so, Lord, if you have dealt with that, would you make us a people that are now unshakable, that fear nothing? And yet, Lord, we recognize that we do still have many fears, that we don't always trust you the way we should. And so, Lord, would you help us to be honest before you now as we do confess our fears to you and as we seek your help in our lives and in our world today. Would you hear our prayers, Lord?